Hey listeners, during the month of June, we're taking a short break and replaying some of our favorite episodes. In season two, we had an amazing conversation discussing all things playwriting with fellow Iowa playwright Deborah Yarchin. Deborah has had two Jerome Fellowships at the Playwright Center and won many more awards for her plays. She shares her experiences and some of her best practices in how she writes her plays. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho. Uh, and today we have a wonderful guest on the show. Her name is Deborah Yarchin. Her honors include two Jerome <laughs> Fellowships at the Playwright Center, a Dramatist Guild Foundation Fellowship, the 2020 Lucum Literary Arts Award for Playwriting, and EST Sloan Commission, the Kennedy Center's Gene Kennedy Smith Playwriting Award, and the Carnotal New Play Award. Uh, she's been a playwright in residence at the William Ng Center for the Arts and a member of the Civilians R&D Group. Deborah's a graduate of the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, where she was Woo-hoo! an Iowa Arts Fellow. <laughs> we also met her, <gasps> Deborah. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Yes, yes. Um, we're so happy to have you on. Um, it's been so many years since we've talked to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thrilling to hear y'all's voices. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we like to start off the show with this question. We like to ask all our playwrights, uh, tell us your earliest memory. What was your life like before theater? Oh, wow. Okay, so I have this intense memory of being in the arms of somebody I didn't want to be separated from. I just have this, I remember this extreme feeling, like the first gut feeling one ever has. And I guess if I could put dialogue to it, it'd be like, nobody but this person, this person good, safe, everybody else bad. Oh my God, stay the heck away from me. Uh, And also I remember a room full of chairs and I described this to my mom and she said that that sounds like my baby naming service from before I was one years old. And it was this moment that I wouldn't let anybody hold me. And I'm not sure what that says about me, if it was like an early sign of anxiety or I just super attuned. You know who the person was who was holding My mom. I'm pretty sure it was my mom. mom. Okay. So I'm not sure if it was an early sign of anxiety Mm -hmm. or I was super attuned from day one with my gut feelings. Uh, But there you go. I also don't think it's necessarily biologically possible to have a memory that early, but there you go. (laughs) I'm sure it is. I believe it. Yeah. And before my, before theater days, I have a lot of memories in general, as a kid, is running around in fields in Texas playing these imagination games um, where we would act out these stories with anyone who would play with me, like my siblings, the kids in the neighborhood. And they were really like improvisations where we were simultaneously the actors in the audience. So in a lot of ways, I think this ties to theater because it was a, sli- a live game of make-believe where everybody's playing. Yeah. Is that where you grew up in Texas? Mostly. my I was raised through the Air Force. So we started in New Jersey. We had a few years in Germany. And then we ended up in Round Rock, Texas, and eventually Austin, Texas. Yeah. And now you are in Vermont. Yes. Temporarily. Yes, temporarily as a, as a displaced COVID person <laughs> through the COVID times, <laughs> as it goes as an artist. I don't, cool. I don't think I... So, uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. 
uh, I was just saying, I, I've actually talked to a few other artists who are in similar positions where as a result of COVID, you just end up mm-hmm. anywhere and everywhere for a while. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. So tell us a little bit about your theater journey. How did you go from being that kid running around playing make-believe to writing plays? Did you, did you come to it through acting as so many other playwrights do, or did you start out writing from the beginning? Uh through acting, but pretty swiftly into playwriting from there. I would. I remember uh, in the between the fourth and fifth grade, uh, my friends' parents through a sleepover took us to see the Zilker Hillside Musical, um, which is in Austin, Texas. They have this wonderful event every summer where, for free, you can you know put a blanket down on the hillside first come first serve, and see the summer musical. And it was Guys and Dolls, which you know it really could have been anything that I could have seen. It was the first professional production that I remember seeing. I remember watching Super Wrapped with my whole body on a different level than if I had you know watched a TV show or a movie. It was something really mm-hmm. profound about it. Like this, it felt this very similar sensation to being in synagogue, but it wasn't about God or about. It was more about humanity. And I'm not you know like that wasn't necessarily my thought at the time, but that was what I felt. And so mm-hmm. the next summer I stood backstage and I stared through the fence. Uh, I just wanted to see what was like inside that theater world. Uh, and a really kind actor, I'll never forget this, gave me a tour of backstage. And then as soon as I was in middle school, there was an opportunity to audition for the the middle school play, which was A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was cast as Puck. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next year, uh, I didn't get cast. And I remember feeling really bereft of the theater. And it was a really isolating mm. year. I mean, it was seventh grade, which is an extremely isolating year for, I think, a lot of people, given that you're a middle schooler. Um, I wasn't particularly popular. There was a lot of things in my world. And I just really missed the theater and that sense of connection. And then I overheard a mother tell uh, the high school, uh, sorry, middle school theater teacher, my son writes plays. And I was in love with writing in the theater and it just hadn't occurred to me until that moment that you could put the two together and you didn't have to be Shakespeare to do it. Mm -hmm. So that weekend I went home and I wrote a play. (laughs) Cool. What was it about? Oh boy. Okay. So it was back in around 1997. That was around the time Titanic had come out. Oh yes. (laughs) So I wrote this this play about these kids (laughs) who had died in the Titanic and they're in this limbo and they had to reenact their deaths or their lives that they didn't get to live or a moment, a moment from the life they didn't get to live or a moment from their past before they could pass on to the next realm. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I guess at the time, it was a play about people needed to tell their stories. And I was a kid who deeply needed to tell mine. I just happened to tell other stories through plays. And that was, in a way, my way of telling my story. That play sounds pretty dark. <laughs> it does sound pretty dark. <laughs> pretty dark. You didn't shy away wow. from the darkness as a child. <laughs> Wow. So okay. So you were in middle school. Then you were yeah. starting writing plays. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I just started. I continued writing them, and it was sort of a secret thing I was doing. I didn't actually tell anybody I was writing plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a couple friends, like, "Oh, I wrote a play," you know. Um, but I didn't share them. Uh, and then in high school, I just, you know, I was continuing to write plays. I found a friend who, at the time, I think she was in eighth grade, and I was in ninth grade, and she also wrote plays. Um, and I saw on the high school theater department's wall this um, poster advertising the VSA Arts Playwright Discovery Award, which is for plays written by kids that wrote, if you wrote a play about disabilities. So I had a sleepover. I was like, Can we, let's write a play together. Um, and so we did. And we wrote it about our, our uh, a mutual friend of ours whose brother's autistic. And we wrote it about their relationship. 
And I interviewed her and we submitted it and we won second place and they flew us up to the Kennedy Center and did a reading of it. <laughs> yeah, this is like a really big deal because at that time I was in the 10th grade and it had been, I'd been writing these plays for a while and it was the first time I ever saw a play of mine in any way performed and co-wrote with a friend and so fortunately had someone alongside me in the audience. I wasn't alone in that moment. Um, which so you were really like cool. a prodigy. I don't know if I'd call myself a prodigy. I was just really, <laughs> I, I, really, know. really I mean, these were heavily excited by playwriting at that point. I read a, I, at a certain point in high school, I was reading a play a day, just read across the theater shelf, was writing plays Whoa. over response. By the time I was 18, I'd probably written something like 28 plays. And like, not to say that they were like, you know, these were plays written by, uh, you know, a high school student. They were not necessarily rock star brilliant, but I was submitting them to anything and everything. Because as soon as I realized that you can have, you know, performers perform them if you win a competition I just tried to to win them all and I was fortunate yeah. to win a number of them um, but what was interesting is that I found uh the plays that won were the ones that started from a deeply personal truth or a truth in someone mm-hmm. else that I recognized and and wanted to get inside and so they were all from honest places and those were the ones that won not the ones that were like you know fun explorations with like a, you know some fun comedic topic they were even if they had humor in them they were starting from a place of realness that seems like a really important lesson to learn especially so early yeah yeah I was really 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 fortunate and there was a competition at the time um through the young playwrights festival it was this is competition I don't think it's still active but fortunately a number of similar ones have sprung up around the country inspired by it this was founded years and years and years ago by Stephen Sondheim and it I had found it you know, just searching for playwriting competitions. And it was, uh, you know, national competition, kids 18 and under who wrote the plays. And if you won, they would fly you up to New York City, they would do a reading of your play off Broadway. And from that, they would select um, a few plays to produce in an off Broadway production. And I went two years in a row. So it was this this amazing thing that a kid from Texas who had, you know, whatever was available to me in the community for theater, but nothing beyond that, suddenly being flown up to New York City with a reading with a professional director and like they would take you to see plays and I had just this amazing experience through this program and then when I was at that point 20 but they picked the plays that you know you'd written from 18 and under they chose out of the two different years that I'd won um, the plays that would be produced off Broadway and I was selected and so I ended Whoa. up with an off Broadway production when I was 20 what? at that point I was amazing like, program it's it's really it's it's sad to me that it doesn't still exist and I hope some variation of it uh becomes you know available again to kids nationally I do know there's other programs like that around the country uh but there was something about Mm -hmm. that because it was rooted in just a tradition like Kenneth Lonergan I think had his first production through it so many really amazing playwrights if you look at their history a lot of them started through that program uh it was it was it's a truly amazing experience as a kid to be validated on that level yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the New York Times reviewed it and called me ambitious is somewhat opake. So I hold that as a <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So I'm curious when you were reading all these plays at that age, what were your influences? What did you feel inspired by um, anything in and other plays? Everything. But the play that really hit me in particularly was actually Angels in America. Uh, mm. I think I picked that off the shelf when I was a sophomore in high school and I remember reading it being like oh my god I'm allowed to read this because this is <laughs> I don't know if you realize what was in that play uh it was amazing to me what I took away from it is that you could actually have 
split scenes where you have multiple things happening on stage simultaneously in different timelines. And I love that. So what I was really getting when I was reading these plays, I mean, it was just style. It was just different theatrical conventions that you can explore. And I would bounce off of those and write a play. Yeah. And theater journey wise after I, so I ended up ultimately pursuing playwriting. I went through a period in high school where I was in denial of this. I wanted to be a high school theater teacher. I didn't think playwriting was actually a valid path one could take. Um, but I went to the, an audition through the, for a bunch of um, theater programs and at all the interviews uh, and these were mainly for acting programs. I asked, uh, you know, what's your playwriting uh, classes like? Do you, how many playwriting classes do you have available? And that was the mm-hmm. moment I was like, oh, maybe I should maybe I should actually pursue this. Um, so after undergrad, I ended up interning at New Dramatist. And that was a really, mm-hmm. this is, that's a seven-year residency for professional playwrights. And I just wanted to see what the paths of all these playwrights were. Like, how do you become, a, how do you actually pursue this professionally? And uh, a number of playwrights that I really admired, uh, like David Adjmi, Rebecca Gilman, Sarah Hammond, and not necessarily who had been a member of New Dramatist, but who had apparently gone to Iowa, Naomi Wallace, I realized, you know, these playwrights had gone to University of Iowa. So when I was searching for a program, that one, that one stood out. Yeah. And yep, fortunately getting into Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Was Iowa your first choice then? Uh, it was one of three. I only applied to three programs. Um, and it was, it was, yeah. So that was when I, when I was accepted, I was very excited <laughs> So I'm guessing when you were like submitting, I was like thinking this is probably before like New Play Exchange or yeah, well <laughs> like, before if there was like anything before. So like, were you just you know just googling it and like yeah. submissions or Yahoo search? I don't know. Madly, madly googling through Yahoo, you know whatever. <laughs> yeah, what are- was the there was like um, what was the search before Google? Now I'm trying to remember. Ask really- Jeeves. There was another search engine that I can't remember. I don't remember either. I just remember maybe it was Yahoo Search that I found the Young Playwrights Festival through. At at the time, it was truly just what was available that you heard about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, So I looked. I looked for whatever competition there was. Were you sending out your plays via the USPS? It was by the USPS, and you'd also get. Letters or your acceptance letters via USPS yeah. or a phone call if you're lucky. What a different time! Yeah, I kind of miss. I kind of. I mean, I don't really miss mailing scripts out. It's certainly more convenient, uh, but there is something about that magic moment when you put it in the mail slot, mm-hmm. <laughs> or when you hit print, or when you get the response. Like even the rejection letter that comes in the mail feels like more of a thing than just an email. You know. Yeah, and then you can collect them. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh my gosh, um, this mm-hmm. is reminding me. So, Deborah, I feel like one of the things I learned from you, from you um, as a writer, you showed me this thing where you like tracked your plays in like an Excel sheet, mm-hmm. and like, are you like tracking like, oh, um that when you're like submitting it or like you got it back, you know, there's all this thing that you showed me. And I remember the thing that stood out to me was when you're like, if it, if you got rejected, you said, um, I don't know. It's not the word rejected. Yours is like, um, not selected. What was the word? 
not selected. Something very like just like <laughs> nice and like oh, it's just like a very. I was like, I just that stood out to me because I. I mean, I basically adopted that way, like, since um, you showed it to me. But, like, I adopted that way of tracking. And I was just, like, every time I did, I saw every time I opened an Excel sheet, I'm just, like, thinking of Deborah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> for me, though, I, like, I'm more, like, I don't know. I'm I'm more, like, meaner to myself, I guess. But I'll just be, like, rejected, red, <laughs> like, bold. <laughs> just, like, wow. highlight it to the top. And I'm just, like... Oh be gentle with yourself <laughs> not selected is, is is more accurate most likely because a lot of times you know when the readers they're not really rejecting you they're just selecting a different play mm-hmm. yeah that's so true yeah yeah which makes me want to think so our next question i just want to uh shift over is um your experience in doing theater in minneapolis because um you know you won the two drone fellowships the playwright center so what was it like working with playwright center what was that um, seem like for you? It was wonderful. It was an opportunity of just time and space to do whatever you need as a writer. And so that's an, a very unique program. And I, I wonder if it still functions this way, but I'm pretty sure it does, where the only requirement is at the end of the year, you write a letter saying what you did. And you could literally say wow. I did nothing. But most likely <laughs> if you're selected for a program, if you if you applied with a statement in earnest about what you wanted to do, you had specific goals that you wanted to accomplish. Um, but that's that was more for... Um, I, I believe they send it to the um, board, you know, and just so that people have an understanding of how people are using those resources just to keep track of that. But it's also, mm-hmm. you know, they give you development funds so you can have you know, workshops for the plays that you're working on. There's an opportunity that you have to teach a workshop of a topic of your choosing, which is really exciting. And just imagine open time and space. And I'm sure that's maybe for some people in COVID, not too hard to imagine, but like there's a bit of time soup involved in that too. So it teaches you discipline on how to structure your time. And that if, if you're, if you're really like, I think a lot of people go through that program and have the first few months of, of a bit of a whirl being like, okay, unless if you have like immediately things lined up that you needed that time and space for anyway. And that's, that's true in some cases. Um, but if you're, in a place where you're like suddenly all this available time and space, you have to figure out how to structure your life in a way that's, you know, productive. And there can be a bit of a learning. So how did you, yeah, I think probably a lot of people listening to this are wondering how did you learn to structure that time and how did you kind of figure out that discipline? Mm. Yeah, it was process trial and error, but I, I, I stuck to uh, like this coming up with systems that would be really useful um, for figuring out writing time and making sure I was staying honest that writing time. And that involved logging my time, similar to that spreadsheet, Sarah, you were talking about mm. for uh, mm-hmm. logging submissions and, and tracking submissions while tracking my time. So if I made this ridiculous goal of, oh, I'm going to write five hours a day, maybe I'd write like two hours a day, you know, but I would write for a period of time each day and I would, I would log it. And there's that automatic, you know, endorphin kick of having checked something off when you could say, I, I, I wrote from this time to this time. Um, and that's something I've been using lately too. And I actually wrote an article for the Playwright Center and I'm happy to send you guys the link, um, how to stay like yeah. 22 tips staying focused during COVID-19. And a lot of that is drawing on strategies that I mm-hmm. learned during the Jordan Fellowship. Yeah, like the Pomodoro wow. technique where you time yourself for 25 minutes um, mm-hmm. and then you take a five-minute break because people tend to interrupt themselves after 25 minutes regardless, but it limits that break time. And then mm-hmm. I started um, jogging and I found that to be incredibly productive, actually physically moving 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that too. Also, something that somebody said at Iowa that I got to explore during the Jerome Fellowship. I forget who told me this, but someone had asked the question of what are your what are your power hours, and it never occurred to me that oh, power hours. There's there's like a specific set time where you might be more productive. Yeah, as a writer mm-hmm. or even in writing applications. So I I was able to chart the time of the day that I was most productive as a writer. And what is it? Usually like nine nine p.m. to two a.m. Weirdly enough, uh, oh, but in God. the mornings too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I find that too. Like when I stay up, if it's the middle of the night, I suddenly get yeah. this burst of productive energy, but it doesn't feel sustainable. You know. Um, yeah, I think maybe in yeah. the evenings, your your mind's in a more open space. You're not yeah. you're not as tense mm-hmm. with thinking about oh, I have to do this next, and so it just right. opens you up to more creative possibilities. And I find in the mornings, I'm just really focused. And I think it really is the post-coffee kick, maybe. <laughs> like immediately after caffeine, mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. go. Um, but as far as the Minneapolis theater community, the thing that struck me the most when I first arrived, I attended this party and it wasn't, it, it was like non-theater people. And there was like software engineers talking about what play they saw that weekend. Like people in the oh, Twin cool. Cities, they see theater. It's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. It's it's really incredible, mm-hmm. and I I I don't I, maybe I hope this is still true, but it, in Minneapolis, next uh, seats per capita next New York City, they have the most seats per capita for theater allegedly. Yeah, I have heard that. That's so cool. Wow. How do you? I mean, this I don't know. You might feel like this is um, too big of a question, but how do you think other communities could um, achieve that? level of like lay people going to plays. <laughs> no idea how, how the Twin Cities managed it or, or what it is about that particular community that, yeah. I mean, there is a sort of solidarity with the winter that creates a, you know, winter, yeah. it's a brutal t- sure. place to be during the winter, you know, and I was there during the polar vortex, but there's all sorts of arts festivals and, and things they do during the winter to keep people, <clears throat> uh, you know, out and about in some ways that they feel connected and not isolated um and so maybe that helps that 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 culture of of art and there's also i think one thing that they do and that's available in the twin cities is funding there's two different uh foundations night foundation and the jerome foundation and they support artists and somehow through that support it becomes like available to the community and there's places like mixed blood theater that have um a policy where it's like pay what you can for x number of seats Wow. They call that radical hospitality that makes it available to people. And there's the fringe is a huge part of the Twin Cities, um, the Minneapolis fringe. That brings out a lot of people who just compare notes about what show they saw. And I I wonder how much that that fringe actually um, affected the culture in terms of people Mm -hmm. becoming regular theater goers. Yeah, but I think that's such a good point that funding for the arts is what makes it a Mm -hmm. kind of public good that's available Mm -hmm. um, to a broader spectrum of people. Yeah. 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 Huh. A lot to think about. Hmm. When you're mayor, Sarah. (laughs) When I'm mayor. It's like a running joke we have that I'm going to be mayor of LA. It's not a joke. (laughs) Oh, my God. It happened. (laughs) Mayor Joe. Um, (laughs) Mayor Joe. Uh, um, let's see. So, okay. So let's talk more about like creative stuff. So how do you organize 
this is actually going to be like a two-part question, I think. So how do you organize all your creative thoughts, like the ideas that come in at you? Um, and then how do you organize notes and feedback of mm-hmm. that you receive for your plays? Mm-hmm. It's a two very different question, actually. But <laughs> Those are two very different questions. I'll start with how I organize my thoughts. So I, since 2009, I've kept this document called Thought Journal. And it's it's a mix of like day-to-day ideas, anything that hits me, quotes I hear, things like sometimes just straight up journaling. And um, I'm on like version three of it because it seems to max out at about 1,776 pages. Like that's where things are. <laughs> So like, it's it's really a mix of things, and just I write anything and everything down, right? And then I have tons and tons Mm -hmm. of work documents. I find that the I don't know how I did it pre having available computers. Maybe I guess I had lots of folders at the time, like actual physical folders. Well, now I have virtual folders um, with ideas that I can put in them, and so I can tend to consolidate play ideas into one folder. I usually have a document that say that says something like notes as I write this. So all the questions mm-hmm. I have as I'm actively writing it so I can come back to those later when I'm revising it, but I can barrel forward in the writing process. Um, so, and, and I have on my desktop um, just like the top four projects or so that I'm working on at a time. So the rest are hidden in other folders. So I, the ones that are more on my mind are available to more, me and more immediately. Yeah. Mm. And as far as like, feedback and how I organize that. I would say it's usually this, I write down as much as I can remember afterwards, unless if I'm taking notes at the time. But really it's like, even when I'm taking notes, I don't necessarily look at those notes that I take while I'm receiving feedback. I I respond to the ones I remember, the ones that haunt Mm -hmm. me. And those are usually (laughs) the notes to work from because there's something that must Mm -hmm. be true about it it if it haunts you, or maybe it's not true, but you need to test that against your own gut. And then how do you take that feedback that haunts you and begin a new draft? Because I think that was one of the most mysterious things about like writing when I was younger was how do people revise? It just seemed so, um, I don't know, like uh, this big mystery I was waiting to uncover. Yeah, I think everyone needs to have their own process. But what seems to work for me is trying to break everything down into actionable goals. So just like the same ways that you would free associate when you write, maybe thinking free associating strategies of how you might attack a specific like note that came up, um, questions, mm-hmm. ideas, places in the script that maybe there might be an answer or a starting point. Um, and then I would mm. I have a like a document that is revision strategies or revision goals, and then I bold the question and beneath it all the ideas, and then I highlight the ones that are the most you know that seem to be the best starting points. And so I break it down into like the order of which I want to, you know, tackle it. Mm-hmm. And then I just start mm-hmm. from there. Cool. I mean, it seems to me, Deborah, like you, one thing I've noticed about you is just you're so prolific. You've just written so many plays and it seems like you're always working on several plays at once. And it's, I guess that's the secret is that you're like super organized and just constantly generating ideas. Mm. Did you say 176,000 pages is where it Oh, 1,776. Oh, so one, that's, that's, one that's about the number of pages you can hit, I think, until you max out a Word document, at least with the amount of memory that my computer has. Um, so maybe <laughs> a better, so better is it like number. error? You must end this. <laughs> 
that starts getting wrong? really slow and doing that thing where it crashes in the middle of when you're writing and you're and you have to recover the document and you maybe lose some stuff. Um, and at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm starting a new one, <laughs> and which is very refreshing because wow. it's like you hit a point where you feel like you're in the next chapter or the next stage of something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I started that like it, it sounds like a lot, but I I've been doing that since 2009. I actually think it started around the time I was applying for grad school. Um, Mm-hmm. When I was trying to come up with a statement and I just couldn't come up with a statement. Amazing. Just to have that record of mm-hmm. all those years. Yeah, it's sometimes horrifying. But what's beautiful about it is, is it's searchable. So if you have yeah. a play idea that That's you can true. like over time, if you search for a keyword, you can find um, any word that connects to that. And then that's really easy then to organize into a new document of all the notes related to that play. Because that, that thought journal is really just a dis- yeah. disorganized jumble of ideas. And it's not even mm-hmm, just ideas. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, um, it's sometimes just journals. You know, like, yeah. what did I do that day? It, it's sometimes it's a list of things to do next. It's it's really a mix. It's like the, the smorgasbord of one's mind. <laughs> it's so crazy. I, like, I feel like we've talked to so many playwrights on this show. And each time it's like, I hear something new. And I'm like, oh, that is so, like, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Like, hearing your uh, perspective because I'm like, oh, that is actually a really cool way of doing it or thinking about um, mm-hmm. like that a search engine. Like that's so true. You could search on the doc um, and find those keywords and like if you have an idea that crosses your mind. Like that is, yeah, that's very true. Um, I like that a lot. So I have another question. <laughs> this is full of questions. Um, uh, so are you just folk? Have you just only been focusing playwriting, or been exploring uh, other forms of writing recently? Yeah, you or, know, um, mm-hmm. in the past few years, and for the longest time, everything came out in the in the form of a play. But I actually had an idea that that didn't really feel like a play or anything else. It felt like a pilot, and I think that's partially because I've started to watch a lot of TV shows. As you know, I think TV is really it's not the same TV as when I was a kid growing up. There's something about it that's gotten deeper mm-hmm. and, and and layered in fascinating ways and and really even structurally adventurous. Uh, so I've, I probably because I've started to watch a lot of TV more so than I had in the past, um, and watching the way the medium has evolved, I had an idea that came out in the form of what I ultimately turned into a pilot. And so I've started to explore TV writing. I've also, I had an idea that fit the form of a novel. So I, I drafted a novel the past two years, a year and a half, actually. Maybe what? Wow. <laughs> How do you? You're just like so prolific. That's amazing. <laughs> Thanks. I don't, so, I don't know. so, what have you noticed about writing in those different um, yeah. forms? Different. The funny thing about writing the novel, the one thing I realized I needed to do was write more details of describing my characters in the setting, because that's not something you typically yeah. do in depth in playwriting. Uh, so that was something. But I think that something that's really helped from starting as a playwright is thinking in layers, thinking in uh, like multiple, you know, ideas, balancing those out through dialogue, character and structure. And, and so the novel actually has an arc. It has a a dramatic structure to it. And I had a friend who's a writer, he read it and he said, wow, I wish, I wish I had that natural impulse towards narrative and story that, I mean, to be fair, he was a poet, but uh, I think that's something that playwriting teaches you because it has a structure and even if it's a self-created mm-hmm. structure, there it lives within a confined form because it's usually about, you know, if it's 10 minutes, 10 minutes, but that has a structure. If it's 90 minutes, it's still contained in something versus a novel, which can be so 
open to a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think well, and as a playwright, I think you're trained from day one to recognize that the audience is held captive. And so you better treat them well, you know, yeah. Whereas yeah. when you're writing fiction, yeah. you know, somebody can pick up and put down a book a hundred times. Um, it just feels yeah. like a different and- kind of experience. Yeah, but the thing that also playwriting can can give you uh, is essential visual poetry, um, because yeah. that really lends itself to TV writing, in on a level that I don't think people realize. Um, there's this really great quote by Jeffrey Hatcher that playwriting is poetry plus architecture, and mm. or no, actually the quote is a playwright is a poet disguised as an architect. Ooh, and, I like that even mm-hmm. better. Yes. Because you're thinking visually. It's like the thing that I find to be closest to playwriting is actually poetry, not a novel, not even TV. It's poetry. Um, yeah. And that, there's a way to that, – that type of thinking lends itself beautifully to visual mediums like TV. Yeah. Mm. Totally. I completely agree. How did you know when you had the idea that it was going to be a pilot rather than a play? It just sort of lived in that form – I don't know if there was any specific like epiphany of uh, like, oh, uh, you know, if I was like going through the different genres that it fit or the the mediums Mm -hmm. that it made the most sense and it just hit me at that moment, like, oh, this is a TV idea. I think it lived, it had, it had a larger breadth of setting, if that makes sense. And in time span, it didn't feel self-contained into a 90 minute ish story it felt like it lived out over a series arc and that felt all right well that's a tv show not a movie even a tv show yeah that makes a lot of sense one thing i'm curious about is um are there any playwrights or plays that are recent or new that or you're just learning about um that you're particularly excited about in this moment Oh, that's a good question. I I kind of draw on the plays that I saw in New York City pre-COVID, um, mm. plays that I saw that just lived in my body. And I was like, oh my gosh, this play is really magical and doing something that theater, only theater can do. Um, so Passover by Antoinette Nwandu, hope I pronounced mm. her name correctly. A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson, Our Dear Dear Drug Lord by Alexis Shear, and of course, Paula Vogel's Indecent. Oh my god, I'm so jealous that you got to see that. Oh, it was so good. We were just talking about that last week. I was, I, I think I rushed it in what was supposed to be one of its last uh, weeks, and then it extended. Uh, but I was really fortunate to catch it because that is that is one that was truly, you know, you have to see it. Yeah. Now, had you read it first, or did no. you go in? No, I just went and saw it. Can you tell us? Because because we just talked about it last week, so. I'm just curious, was there a moment that you can describe um, from that production that was particularly powerful? I think the woman of the dancing together. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's something very visceral about that. Yeah. Cool. If you were an audience member or reader who read your play for the first time or just like saw your play for the first time, how do you think they might describe you in one word? (laughs) Sarah, this is such a good question. (laughs) I don't think we've ever asked anybody of this before. I don't think so, yeah. We're trying a new one out on you. Okay, all right. (laughs) I I guess I would say intimate. 
Mm. <laughs> We're like, ooh. Okay. Say more. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I think partially it, it ties to what to me is the core of why I love playwriting. And it's that intimate connection between the audience and the characters. But one of the things that I was really interested in for a long time was like, how can you create a whole massive world through very few characters? Because that's extremely theatrical to me. It's like how you can create mm-hmm. just a sound. Um, so what about two to three characters? And so for the longest time, I wrote very small cast plays. Um, and then recently I wrote a play with six characters. But even then I would say there's an intimacy to that play because it's so focused on the relationships between the characters and, and also the connection I find to the audience of those characters. All right. Well, we have a lot of listeners who I think are just starting out. They're maybe getting ready to try to write their first play or maybe their second play. Um, so... Since you're so accomplished, what advice would you give to those listeners um, who are dipping a toe into the water of playwriting? Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they're starting out, they look for the answers from somebody else about how, yeah. how do you write a play, right? But actually, the answers are, are with yourself. It's what works for you. So follow your gut and your own process. Um, some people mm. are going to throw everything onto a page and revise. Another writer recently uh, use the phrase gardening as a way to describe that, where you just put everything Ooh. down. I think it was Rachel June Drewski. I, I hope I'm right on that. Um, gardening, like you just throw everything down on a page and then you pull the things from it that you, you know, that, that become the play, right? And that's one process. But then I'm super structured personally. Like I have to know the ending of the play. I have to know what the beginning is, and and then I can follow a path from there. And and I start. Uh, you know, I have a similar sort of throw everything down process, but that's not the same. It's coming through a structure. I'm, I'm, I'm gathering in a different way. Um, and then the other thing to know is that when you hit a point, when you've written a play and you're like, you hit a wall, you don't know what the next step is. Well, your next step is to have a reading of it because you need to hear it. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize how important it is. And you, this could just be anyone, you know, just offer pizza up to some actors, have them in your living room, or I guess in this case via zoom and maybe, I don't know, send them positive vibes instead of pizza at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but gather, gather your friends. Through the USPS and support the postal service. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and right from the honest places that scare you most, you know? And also what's really important is when you have opportunities come forward, say yes, as often as you can. Because mm-hmm, a lot of times mm-hmm. the best opportunities that you end up having come from avenues you, that you don't anticipate. And the collaborators that you meet in the most unexpected places become the people that you work with down the line, who either you bring an opportunity to or they bring an opportunity to you. So I can't tell anyone what the path to fancy is, but I can tell you that's the path to being a working playwright. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. Like, read plays and watch plays. And while you're watching, ask yourself where in your body you're feeling it. And, you know, what, what mm-hmm. part is it hitting you? And then ask yourself why. You mentioned like this, like gut feeling, like having those instincts. Do you think that um, it was something developed over time, like for writing multiple plays and like. Maybe. But also, mm-hmm. I think. What's really, if you can, I mean, you can start at any point. You don't have to be like a 12-year-old to start writing plays. You could be like 50, 60, any age. Um, I think that what helped me starting young was was that when you're a kid, you're writing from that same place that you're playing imagination games from. You don't question it. Um, mm-hmm. so, so trying to tap into that moment where you don't question something. You don't second guess it or overthink mm. it. 
um, you just play because it's called a play, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But also it comes from experience too of knowing, and this is tricky too, because you don't want to second guess things by being like, well, it doesn't feel like that. It's always going to feel different, right? For every single play, every play has mm. its own process and structure. Um, but knowing what's worked in the past um, from seeing your work you know, performed, um, I, I think you can hold in your, your own body and sitting in an audience, people responding. But you also don't want to game that too much. So it's it's this constant game, right? <laughs> don't game it. It's a constant game. But yeah. <laughs> I think it's tricky, though, because uh, the idea of gut feelings, like what happens if you also have anxiety, which a lot of writers do? So it's like, how can you tease out your gut feelings from anxiety, especially when you're criticizing something about your work? Uh, and I think you just have to learn through trial and error. That's why you you hear it read out loud and you revise. But you can know, you know, when you're sitting in an audience, when something's not working and it helps to have feedback too, uh, especially from mm -hmm. people you trust, because sometimes you'll be like, it's not working, but it actually is for somebody else or it is for mm -hmm. a lot of people. You're just second guessing yourself. So well, I, think I think that's one of the hardest things too is um, learning, like a lot of times you can tell that something's not working, but you don't necessarily know why. Yes. Um, you know, like I think about, a lot of early plays that I wrote and listening to readings and, and thinking like, Oh my God, this is so boring. <laughs> you know, or like, mm. this is it's like, something is slow here. Something's not connecting here, but I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what the problem is and I, I don't know how to make it better. And, and I agree. I think trial by error and or trial and error and just having, having a lot of patience. It might also be trial by error. <laughs> trial by error. <laughs> yeah. I, also, like, a lot of times, I think it also comes down to, is it honest? Right? Mm -hmm. Like some people hit writer's block, but maybe that's because, I, and I don't know who said this, but maybe it's because you're not being honest with yourself in that moment as a writer. Like what, where's, what, what truth are you not telling and how can you get closer yeah. to that? Yeah. That's but so sometimes it's a rhythm thing. It's sometimes so you have too much dialogue and you need to hear it. You need to hear that dialogue and music. They're they're very similar. Deborah, here's a big question: How would uh -huh. you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century? That is a big question. Okay, I'll narrow it down. In <laughs> 21st century America. Okay, all right, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, how about as as a theater artist specifically, or or probably an artist in general? And I don't know if this is yeah, as a theater artist, necessarily specific to the 20. First century, but possibly very specific to America. Although maybe it's true in a lot of other places, it's it's a it means legitimizing and fighting to legitimize your work beyond money. Everybody mm. seems to see money as a signal of success, but unfortunately, that's not true of playwriting. I mean, it can be if you're like an outlier, but it's not necessarily true. Um, it, it means being in a world that seems to value things that are only tied to money, but somehow doesn't want to pay artists. So you're justifying yeah. your time and success beyond what's conventional. So you have to find the inner strength and power to stick to the things you know you value more than a conventional lifestyle. And that can be hard and involve a lot of sacrifices. And so one thing that I find helpful is this quote by Georgia O'Keeffe, which is, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. Oh, that, wow. I stick my bulletin board every day as I try to pursue playwriting in America. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's so true that it, you have to let go of the, um, the 
linking we have in our minds between success and money. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Or fortunately. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of yeah, freeing. Maybe. It is free. It depends it on how you look at it, I guess. It's also very crippling, but it's also very freeing. I mean, once you start with <laughs> <laughs> it depends on your yeah. level of privilege, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Depends on where you're coming at. Yeah. But I mean, I think I've heard a lot of people that we've talked to um, talk about how, you know, if you're getting, if you're making a living from something else or if you're, you know, kind of um, looking in other places for your financial security, then it does kind of free up the writing and the creativity in a different way. That totally makes sense. That, that makes a lot so, of sense. But yeah, it is. It's it's a constant. I think it's con- we're constantly having to work on um, delinking those two mm-hmm. things in our minds. Yeah, I would say. I mean, people need to start recognizing that just because you have a day job doesn't mean you're not a playwright. <laughs> um, if you're right. not doing playwriting full time, you're still a playwright. It's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Before we move on to glistens, uh, Deborah, where can our listeners find you? I'm on the New Play Exchange under Deborah Yarchin. I hope everyone at this point has heard of New Play Exchange. It's this wonderful um, program website that uh, people can upload their scripts to and people can read. And membership mm-hmm. is extremely expensive. And I also have a website, DebraYarchin.com. So this part of the show, glistens. Do you remember glistens from Workshop? Where yes. Yes. We all like share fair glistens um, or from the place, but it's similar idea. Uh, it could be from the, your week, something that kind of popped out at you during the week, something you caught your attention. Um, uh, I could go first. So I'm scrolling on Instagram and I come across this post and this post um, was about Andy Warhol and he had this book called 25 cats named Sam and one blue pussy. <laughs> and I was like, what? I wanted to share this with Sam because I was like, Andy Warhol had like 20 cats over 20 cats names, just all named Sam. And I thought that was hilarious. Um, and he, yeah. he had all these cats simultaneously. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Not like um, one after the other, but they were all in his house at the same time named Sam. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. <laughs> and I think it, I think I read somewhere that he was at the time living with his mom. So with his mom and like oh twenty God. cats, and there's just one cat name. That's so too many cats. That's yeah. Like, how do you even take care of them? Like, how can you give them? I don't know. <laughs> so, anyways, I thought that was pretty hilarious. And then, you know, it's an our Sam here on the show. So I was like, that's and I love cats. Thank you for so sharing like, sharing that gem. <laughs> So what is he? He just says, Sam, come here, Sam. And then like 20 cats come. <laughs> cats don't come when you call, Deborah. Oh, that's yes, true. That's sure. true. <laughs> they all ignore you when you say Sam. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> 20 cats ignoring you. All <laughs> Well, Mike, listen, is, um, okay, so I went to a haunted island this week um, to do research for a story I'm writing. And the island is called Swan Island. But then my glisten is that next to the island, there's this little rock with like really stunted trees growing on it. It's called Spalding's Rock because in the 1700s, this woman named Anne Spalding um, 
was, I think she was British. Anyway, she was waiting for her husband to like, I don't know, come back from sea or something. Her betrothed. They weren't married yet. And he was going to come back and marry her. And then um, he ended up marrying somebody else. And so she decided to go live on this island, which is really not much more than a rock. And she like became a spinster hermit. And I guess spent the rest of her life there, although it was very difficult to find any further information about her. But um, it was named wow. after her, Spalding's Rock. That's my glisten. Wow. I want to go there. Yeah, you should. Yeah. What's your glisten, Deborah? Well, it's something I'm really, really excited for tonight that I technically discovered last week, but been thinking about all week, which is the the show Lovecraft Country on HBO. I'm extremely yes. hooked on it. Have you guys been watching it? Yes. No, I don't have HBO. Good. Uh, it's it's about a young black man traveling across 1950s segregated America, and it adapts Lovecraft's horror stories into that setting. And it's Whoa. just really well done, really smart. And I read online that somebody compared it to Get Out meets Watchmen, which also feels very true. Yeah, it does feel that way. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I think third. Yeah, so the the third episode comes out tonight. I yes. I yeah that I was. I just like could not like the world is so imaginative. And then obviously I, did you read the book? I didn't read the book, no, but, but I want um, to now. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And um, oh, it's based on a book mm-hmm, called Lovecraft mm-hmm. country. And it, it's like based on Lovecraft, like his world. And apparently he, the author Lovecraft was like really racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's not surprising. Yeah. Um, it sounds really good. Okay, you guys can watch the HBO show and I'll go read the book. <laughs> I'll report back. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I, th- I think you could get like a seven day free trial. I don't want to be hooked into it. So wait, wait, wait a few, wait until all the episodes are out and then, and then trial it. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. Then, but then yeah. I know I'll just, I'll just end up subscribing and paying for it and I'll have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> I just love that it's something to look forward to every week. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's so real. Yeah, so that's probably the first show. Your time. Yeah, it's, it's been the first show that I feel like I'm excited. Like since Game of Thrones, it's like the first show that I'm like kind of excited to know what happens next week. Um, I haven't felt like that in so long. <laughs> yeah, for me it was uh, Westworld. First it was Game of Thrones mm, and Westworld, and now, now there's this Westworld. show. Yeah, HBO rules. Um, okay, so. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah, for coming on to our show. Thank you so much. Uh, it was so lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much.